from 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Snoop D-O-double-G invests in Klarna. Wow. Lots to say on this one. And Square launch a debit card for business. And we dig into the Aussie banking scene. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 291 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11 office in Devonshire Square in London. My name is David Breer and I'll be your host for today. And I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, Jason Bates and Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, guys? It's good. It's good. It's manic. It's hectic. Um, I'm very excited to be talking about Australian fintechs. You know how much I love that. Oh, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Sarah's been walking around the office doing that. Oh, I'm really cold. I think she's actually like pitching to uh, to set up 11FS in Australia. I mean, I'm for that. Like, no, no need to pitch, Sarah. Just like buy some tickets. We're done. You've got that recorded, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. As always, uh, we're joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, so first up, we have Dan Macklin. Dan, you're the co-founder of SoFi. How's it going? It's going well. Great to be back in London. And um, what brings you over here? Because you're uh, you're not based here, are you? You're based over in San Fran. Based in San Fran. Officially here for a week's work of meetings. Unofficially, my brother's fortieth birthday tonight. So, and everybody now knows that. <laughs> <laughs> do we? Do we need like what's your brother's name? Do we need to sing happy birthday? Because yeah, he, he may blush with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, next up, we have another Dan. So Dan Lother, how's it going, Dan? Very well, thank you. And Very you're well. the head of fintech at CC Group. Indeed, indeed. Thanks for coming. That is an awesome T-shirt. Like, very visual gag there, but I'm loving the Atari <laughs> T-shirt of everybody. And Thanks. last up, we have Freddie Kelly. How's it going, Freddie? I'm very good, thank you. I'm and good. you're the CEO of Credit Kudos. How's it going? I am. It's going very well. It's very well. Very busy start to the year. And it's like three people, debutants to the show. Like, oh, you've been on before. All right. Probably I wasn't here, so sorry. But like, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so you, you know what you're in for on this thing, guys. Like, sorry for you too, but like, you know. Don't tell them. It's be a nice surprise. All right. Let's get on with the news. Uh, don't forget, if you have any questions for us uh, or a news story that you catch that we don't cover, drop us an email over on podcast at 11fs.com or find us on social media. Also, if you can't get enough of us and you're like, well, what do these weird people look like rather than just listening to us on the podcast? We're bringing back Fintech Insider on air. So every Wednesday from 3 p.m., you'll be able to see us live on Periscope, chatting through either the latest topics or just something we find interesting. So uh, keep your eyes on 11FS Twitter for more news on that. All right. What's up first? So first one that we have is Finn and Juice. So this is... Snoop Dogg invests in Klarna. Uh, so this is a story over on Forbes, but everywhere else too. Uh, that Snoop Dogg invests in Klarna, which is Sweden's 2.5 billion unicorn. So he's become a minority shareholder, uh, changed his name to Smooth Dog. That's with three O's in it, which is wonderful. Uh, and uh, a whole <laughs> other group of stuff. But I think we should just get into this one. This is pretty cool, right? What do you guys think? Super cool. I'm a big hip-hop fan, so Smooth Dog is welcome in the fintech world. It's like your world's colliding, like the hip-hop world and like the finance world. and Yeah, yeah. So we we, Skeleton, fabulous. we obviously had, we had Will I Am on the podcast about, what, two months, three months ago, and that was like a big thing, but now Snoop's in the finance were like, I'm putting it out there, we're going to get Snoop on the podcast, right? We're going to have to get make this happen in terms of this <laughs> setup just because it feels like we, it would be a waste of this opportunity if we didn't, right? 
I'm the I'm the naysayer in the room. I mean, first of all, I'm not a hip hop uh, fan. Um, but second of all, I I I questioned actually last week how valuable uh, Will I Am had been to Atom, and I think it's an interesting choice of brand ambassador because it's not exactly everybody's going to love it. It's not like a well loved figure. It is deliberately divisive. Now I know that if you if you were a fashion brand. I would get why you might do that because you're aligning people to your tribe. But also, as we talked about last week, payments is a scale business. You want as many people using your payments method as possible. So to me, it's a really interesting decision to choose a brand ambassador that I would say, and I'm not the only person, quite a few people are going to be like, oh, I don't know about that. Like, that's not necessarily something, first of all, necessarily that makes me want to use it. And second of all, actually makes me want to do the opposite. Like, I don't want to give Snoop Dogg my money. I mean, I know plenty of people around this table have done that, but I'm just not sure about it. I definitely did do that, yeah. He, that was the first album I ever bought on CD. The Dog so. No, the one before that. The one before Sorry, that. we've totally taken the sensible <laughs> point and moved it away. But That's fine. But I, I, agree, I agree with what you're saying, Sarah. There is an element here about, I, and I hadn't even considered that, whether it would be, I, like, I'm just like, 12 year old me like excited by this <laughs> but like the like uh, on a real point actually he might be much more of a diverse um you know people who either look at his lyrics and be like well this isn't a, a role model we should be sort of looking at to represent a financial services company like you can't imagine like you know lloyd's banking group or rbs having a spokesperson who was uh you know hip-hop star right did, did you have any uh a brand ambassadors at sofi dan we didn't and i i wish we had but but, but we didn't um but the the way I look at it, I think Klarna, I don't know that most people on the street know who they are. So I think what they want is just to get the brand out, their brand recognition. So if in three months or six months someone's do- making a transaction, they see it, there's some recognition. Honestly, I can't see this being a long-running partnership. <laughs> maybe it will. Maybe I'd be surprised. But I, I think it's just to give it a bit of um, you know, pizzazz yeah. in, in the short term and, and, and to try and get that name recognition going. When they when they entered the UK market, their advertising campaign, I don't know if anybody saw it, was a man with a rather large belly with just wearing his underpants, smacking his stomach and like the waves of that rolling out to be like sound waves. Um, so they have a history of, of doing slightly off the wall advertising. Have, have you seen the smooth viral stuff online, which involves, I think, a slippery snake being put down a slippery slide? Because they're talking about everything that's around smooth. So that was the the precursor to smooth dog. But I think a lot of what Klarna has done is accept that, unlike other payment companies which have tried to work with retailers, is that they have to get skin in the game. So my my understanding of Snoop it, in the game. Oh, Snoop, there we go, <laughs> exactly. Um, is that they you know they they do a lot of joint marketing, joint customer acquisition, etc. So they need that brand recognition. Um, to demonstrate that they're kind of bringing as much to the table as the retailers. And I think as much as Snoop, maybe how many years ago, criminal record, et cetera, et cetera, and he has some investments in cannabis companies, but don't we all these days? Um, <laughs> I kind of think that 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 side of him is lost and people kind of see the Snoop Dogg that, you know, appears in pop culture and rom-coms, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah, I was watching... Um, yeah, some, who can remember the film where he appeared... Um, where old, the, old School. The, the, old School, yeah, the frat party, and he appeared in the middle of that. Yeah. So, I'm going to put it out there, that's not a film I would ever have chosen to see. So. Well, it was <laughs> a, a good, very, very there's quiet a good, Christmas. I think, uh, broader point there, that suddenly we're getting to a point where there are cultural influences, whether they're the Kardashians or, or a big 
hip hop name where it's no longer enough that you're just going to pay them a fee to be in an ad actually they want to get a little bit of equity they're you know they're going to they want to leverage the wealth they have to make more and so then it, be, it becomes much more of a joint venture of the snoop brand that or the smooth brand with the uh, with Klarna yeah. and 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 that sort of uh, influencer based business suddenly it's not two global businesses coming together it's actually I, I want your following I want your endorsement but I can't buy it from you because it's are you because it's so valuable and you're so rich yeah and he's obviously somebody who's clued up guys involved do you in think that, and a though, number of different things I was going to ask that but, question do you actually think he is clued up or do you think he has a manager who comes to him and says these are really smart investments dude you want to pick them I don't know. I mean, I, I always saw that argument. Like, there's a Ashton Kutcher, for example, is like one of the the guys yep. that's always like played yes. his investor, but like really, it was his fund manager that like put it in Uber and all these. He other had a companies. really good fund investor. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd be inclined to think the same thing. Probably. He he does talk quite a good game though, doesn't he, Ashton Kutcher? Actually, in terms of like the investments and the strategy and the now, yeah, but when he made those investments, probably <laughs> probably not so much. He's been coached, right? yeah, <laughs> like David Beckham. <laughs> but, but coming back to Snoop, we're discussing it as the lead item on this podcast. Yeah. They're going out to millions of people. So maybe maybe mm. it does work, just the fact we're talking about it. Maybe that's enough. Yeah, I, I guess there, there is interesting points here about, so to your point, Jason, actually in, in that, uh, you know, brand ambassadors have lived before. But like Howard from Halifax didn't get equity in Halifax, did he? Do you know what I mean? Like so, so that 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 changing. He's kicking himself now. Yeah, I know. Howard? Yeah, he should have uh, he should have negotiated a bit harder, shouldn't he? But um, but no, I I think it really is an interesting story. I'm hoping we manage to get to Snoop and actually answer all of these questions. But you know, if if anything, I think the you know the interview that we did do with Will I Am, which if you guys didn't catch that one, so that was back was it November last year? So that was uh, I think it was. 26, 270, 269, something like that. Go back and have a look at that. If you didn't see the fist bump with that leader glyptus and Will I Am did, it was the best thing I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Like I literally, I have that in my photo stream almost permanently just because it's the best thing. Um, but, um, you know, Will I Am did say some smart things around the industry. Like he is on boards of AI companies doing all sorts of different things and doing good in that sense. I, I have actually probably seen more smart stuff come out of him than I have out of Snoop when it comes to financial services or, uh, you know, technological kind of advancements. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see whether he's in it from a branding perspective or he's in it from an advisory perspective. Apart from maybe that watch that made everyone bleed. But that was not so good. Yeah, yeah. that was exactly great. I think, I think the interesting thing... <laughs> move it on, move it on. The interesting thing with this one is, and I haven't heard the Will I Am podcast, apologies, um, and I don't know an awful lot about other than him being an investor and it being a big thing a couple of years ago when he got on board, but you can go online and there's a commercial all about Klarna with Snoop Dogg. Yeah. And that's doing the rounds uh, on social media. Uh, it's already racking up a phenomenal amount of views. This seems to me the difference is that Snoop Dogg is an investor and a brand ambassador rather than Will I Am, who is Will just I am an, is investor. an investor. And an ambassador. Yeah. But, but, but I haven't options. seen Will I Am ambassadorize, be an ambassador for um, Atom Bank. So I haven't seen consumers being pulled towards that bank based on this big star that they've got on board, whereas it seems to me Klarna are going to put him to work. Mm. Um, and if I'm, you know, there's obviously various things of, ex of money is exchanged behind, you know, investments, etc. It seems like they're going to really, really capitalize on what they've... Um yeah, no, I, I really, really agree with that. It's a really, really interesting one. And we managed to speak to Aoife Houlihan over at Klarna about it. We at Klarna were so excited to finally reveal our collaboration with Snoop Dogg or now better known as Smooth Dog, and to mark the launch of a new external campaign, Get Smooth. 
We also revealed that Snoop Dogg is now a minor shareholder in Klarna. Over the last couple of years, smooth payments has been our communicative concept as well as customer promise, removing unnecessary friction in the world of payments. But we at Klarna wanted to elevate smooth to the next level and we asked ourselves who in the world would personify that best. The answer in the end was pretty obvious. Well, probably the smoothest person alive, Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg outside of his cultural icon status is a pretty significant investment portfolio and he was looking to expand this to Europe. He was very interested in Klarna as a company and what we were trying to achieve. But from the outset, it was very clear both of us wanted to do something that went beyond a traditional campaign. We at Klarna love challenging norms and we see this collaboration as a means of building new bridges and connections to people with creativity, but above all to people who are both passionate about what they do and they dare to think in a different or new way. It's not a revelation that payments is what's generally referred to as a low engagement category. That's something we're determined on transforming through our products by offering a service and an overall superior experience, rather than just the simple transaction of movement of money. The Klarna proposition of pay later or try before you buy is a perfect example of this. The quality and execution of a product and service is absolute king, but you also need to be relevant and to connect with people on a deeper and more emotional level. Klarna's branding found itself amongst a sea of corporate finance blue a couple of years ago. We then became pink. Since then, we've been continually developing and building our voice and brand. On this occasion, it's through pop culture and to be something that people can relate to. In the end, we really hope that people will love this and it will bring a smile to their face. We also, of course, hope that it will enable more people to discover Klarna. The fact that Snoop Dogg differs from all our other investors makes this collaboration pretty interesting. He brings something new and unexpected to the table and we love it. Awesome. Thanks very much, Eva, for your input on that one. You know who I, I would want? The Rock. I reckon he's the brand ambassador. Dwayne Johnson. Everybody loves Dwayne like, Johnson. He's a, you know. That's big money. He's that's big money. Ju- that's yeah. big money. He's yeah. a really nice guy. Do you ever listen to the Simon, yeah. Yeah. The Simon Mayo, that. Mark Kermode podcast? The, yes. the, yeah, that, I mean, it's one of my favorites. And they just say he is literally one of the nicest yeah. people. And, and he, he raises ratings of films just for his pure charisma. Yeah. I mean, so so I, I think, I think 11FS might need a brand ambassador. No, right? no, I think, I think if, I think we flip this, we say, Dwayne, if you're listening, if you want to start a bank, if you want to like, if you want to do a, a fintech proposition, we're here for you, bro. The yeah. Rock we, Bank. The, I'm like, in for the, that. You see, I'm like, no. Snoop Dogg, I'm like, no way. But The Rock, I'm like, oh, no, I'm it all in. like Alcatraz, though. Yeah. That's the right... Is that the right vibe? We'll no, work with the branding. It's rock solid. Oh, it's rock solid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your oh. money's really, really safe I, with I, us. I can see it already. Like, it's a winner. So just coming on to that, Sarah, so you'd definitely be in for The Rock yeah. to be a brand ambassador yeah. for a bank. He's a we, feminist icon. Is he? He absolutely feminist is. Feminist icon? He absolutely is. He um he has two young daughters and um he is out there, like his social media is all over. He's clearly a very nice man, but he's always, always, always like saying he's a feminist, like teaching his daughters, like they can do anything they want in the world. Like he he is, he is absolutely... Couldn't be more perfect. Yeah, it can be more perfect. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna email them and we're gonna start back. It's be brilliant. All right, I'm gonna see what I can do on that one. So, uh, so if I actually, Dan, are you in? You in for that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So definitely. This, this is just <laughs> my sister's in. birthday coming up, so I need an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> this has suddenly turned into a board meeting for a bank that we're making. So, the sorry, bank of rock. yeah, sorry for this one, listeners. We'll move on, shall we? All right, from smooth to square. So this is a story over on Finextra. This is Square launches debit card for businesses. So Square announces the launch of a free debit card for businesses that gives sellers real-time access to funds. 
this is good. Square kind of diversifying and sort of getting into a slightly different group of people providing slightly different services? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think they're actually providing, I mean, there's a, there's a note here in our show notes talking about like cannibalizing its own existing product, but I think they're actually solidifying their, their, the loyalty of the customers they have. So the really exciting thing about this is that small businesses who have accounts with Square, who take payments with Square, can now use that debit card to spend money the, the instantly, the minute they earn it. So it eases cash flow for them. And the other thing that I, I found out was that um, for 40% of people who'd signed up for Beta, it was their first ever business debit card. So these people have never had a business card before. Now they have one. That's going to make their lives even easier when it comes to like managing expenses, you know, filing taxes. And Square is nothing if not going into value-added services. They have a huge range of products and services. So I can completely see how what it actually does is tie you even further into the Square ecosystem if you're a Square merchant. Yeah, makes sense. The thing, you know, it's a little thing, but the thing that I really liked was the card design. Like it was, it was like 2017. Jack Dorsey had this sort of teaser ad out of like this jet black card with his signature that said Jack, like embossed in white on the front. And it was like, that is sexy. It's illegal or it's against card scheme, but it's amazing. And, um, and, but it seems that sort of early prototype has, has evolved into this gorgeous sort of white gray card with actually the, um, the, the person who takes out the account, their signature on the front. So it's almost that sort of, you know, you recognize your signature, you own it. It's, it's so personalized in a way that, you know, we've seen other players say you can put whatever photo you want on the front of your card as long as it's not trademarked or a, <laughs> a, a, a cartoon <laughs> character or a famous brand. And everyone's like, okay, so what photo am I going to put on? Um, but your signature, like there's no IP problems around that. And it is something that you feel that, that sort of connection to. So, a, so that's the, that was one of the things that really grabbed me. And I say as a business as well, it's even more important. So if you're a freelancer or a contractor, um, then, you know, having your name visible both ways, I quite like that as well. Kind of like if your personal brand is very, very important, if you are a small business or you're the CEO of a, you know, a startup, it's two or three people. I think that, I think that's really nice there as well. What do you see with sort of Square in the, in the Valley and sort of in the US? Cause obviously it's their, their home to it, it's huge and, and their branding is great and, and I think increasingly they are seen as a small the small business brand and um, Sarah you mentioned it. I was surprised when it said 40% of these early beta card owners uh, card owners have never had a business expenses card to me that's crazy just because that just that separation at the end of the month is painful so a company that they know and love already and they deal with offering that card you can see why they're going to do well yeah, it's, it, it is amazing how many people are just using a retail uh, current account to actually run their business. And if they have that existing relationship with Square, they're doing it on their retail account. That it just it's crazy. It makes isn't perfect it? sense. And, and all the benefits. So all of a sudden, Square sees the other side of the transaction. So if you're in the business of value-added services and an Empos business had to, so I had a client a few years ago, will remain unnamed, and working with those guys, I realized how hard Empos was because payments, as we know, is a scale game. And then you chuck hardware on top. So this is a high investment um, play. So you need to offer a lot of value-added services for it to work as a, as a business proposition. And they've got a whole bunch of um, different value-added services. And then if you add that, is it? I think it's called on us transactions, mm. um, whereby obviously if Square is paying another, uh, a person with the Square card is then paying at a Square terminal, um, they can obviously reduce the cost of that transaction because they're not going through a Visa or a MasterCard. And very few companies have ever done that well. So wasn't it currency? 
an MCX years ago, wasn't it? Walmart and a bunch of the other big retailers went, they're going to do their own card. It'll be on us transactions. And it failed miserably. But I suppose if any company's going to do it, it probably sounds like it's going to be Square, right? Hmm. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's actually not a, it's not a small uh, rebate either. So it's two point seven five percent, which actually is, is if you're doing the if you're once you cut interchange fees, yeah. <laughs> of course, interchange is a lot bigger in the US than it is. You know, it's been capped in Europe, so you don't have that to play with. But mm. suddenly, that's a very real incentive to keeping this ecosystem of small businesses buying from each other, which is great. I mean, we've had the Brixton pound and all kinds of like local currency stuff, but mm. something that actually keeps small businesses going with other small businesses within Square's ecosystem at, at discount, that, that's nice. Mm. It is. Well, we'll see how many people take this up and uh, see what uh, actually happens with it. But definitely, I'd like to um, get my hands on one of those cards. It does look nice, doesn't it? All right, moving on. So next up, we have uh, Google's GDPR fine. Ooh, that's a bit of a big one as well, isn't it? So this is over on BBC News. So Google hit with 44 million pound GDPR fine over ads. So Google has been fined 50 million euros, so that's 44 million pounds, by the French data regulator for breaches of EU data protection rules. So the regulator has judged that people were not sufficiently informed about how how Google collected data to personalize advertising. Hmm, it's an interesting one. It's interesting. There's a couple of interesting points. One is that the French regulator did it rather than the Irish regulator. Now, Google is actually regulated in Ireland, but the Irish regulator said they didn't have the authority um, <laughs> on this instance, which I don't. I haven't done the digging into that, but that's an interesting statement up front. Second, it's only 50 million. I mean, GDPR says you can find up to a quarter of the country's, a country, sorry, of the company's revenue. Now, I don't know off the top of my head Google's annual revenue, but I'm I guessing. Looked, I looked. Uh, did you? 2018 Q3 was $33 billion. Right. Wow. So so this is this is pennies to them. But but what's interesting is it is pennies to them, but they're still appealing it. Because of principle. They were like, no, we don't like the principle this sets for regulators. Are they appealing yep, it? they're appealing it. Um, they said we've worked hard to create a GDPR consent process for personalized ads that's as transparent and straightforward as possible, based on regulatory guidance and experience and user experience testing. We're concerned about the impact of this ruling on publishers, original content creators, and tech companies in Europe and beyond. For all these reasons we've now decided to appeal. Or pre-ticking something. I, I think yeah. I, I think there's there's always a, an element there of like if you're gonna set precedent, if you're gonna have to expel less money than you would be fined anyway, it's probably worth appealing, right? But 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 there's also the fact that this you might argue this is fundamental to their business model because actually it's the option to personalize ads was pre-ticked. If everyone who used Google did, did just didn't look and didn't tick and you can't use my data in order to personalize ads, then AdSense suddenly becomes Pointless, uh, yeah. a bit of a problem. So I think this is an important one for them to win. Mm. Like, you know, you you really need customer data in order to, to, to keep improving the ads and improving who you're showing them to and how that all works. And if suddenly, you know, you can, GDPR says you can only use data for things you've got authorization from and can't assume that, that I think that gets them into some problems. I think the precedent point is really interesting as well, because as soon as this caves and, and happens, there's like a queue of claims companies that are lining up, waiting to find other <laughs> other places which they've got pre-ticked a box or not pre-ticked. Uh, I can or... hear the radio advert now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you used Google? Call us exactly. to find yeah, out. Yeah. If you can. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the precedent point is important because my personal belief, and I said on this podcast a few times before, is that I don't think fines actually work with big companies because either the money isn't it's nothing for them. We see it all the time with big banks. They spend million, they pay millions and millions of pounds in fines and it annoys them, but it doesn't... St- 
stop them doing things i'd say also it doesn't necessarily have the desired impact a lot of the time it, you know it's a protracted process they get issued with the fine they pay the fine and then two years later you hear them being fined for something else and my personal belief is that money is not enough um I think, as you say here, it's not the money, it's the principle. So we should do, like, public humiliation. Yes, yeah. we, we actually have a podcast. Punishment. Yeah. We actually have, you know, there's a podcast called Ritual Humiliation, which I helmed because I made this point so <laughs> emphatically that we need to humiliate bankers who mess up, especially when it hurts consumers. Wow. Well, so, get in so, touch with Sarah if you work at a big bank. <laughs> that sounds like a whole different pro- uh, podcast, to be honest. So, I mean... Um, How's this viewed from from over in the US? Because GDPR is very much a European thing, and by by some I know is seen as actually quite a big step. Yeah, I, I think um, it is like a European thing, obviously. Um, so, so it's different over there. I think where this is relevant though is that the a few years ago the tech companies couldn't really do any wrong, and and it really has been a short period of time, two or three years. Um, not just Google, but Facebook and Twitter. And suddenly nearly all of the world's problems are due to these companies. So I think this is just the money Look, they can obviously afford it. But it's just another PR negative that, you know, is it drip, 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 drip. And gradually they're losing public um you know, public support, which in the end might be the bigger thing here. Which is really interesting when you think all of the services that we get that we don't pay for for free, you know, social networks, search, maps, like Google, sort of Facebook, Twitter have given so, like me personally, so much value. And yet it's it's now like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, what are they doing with my data? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, it's a really interesting flip. You get on used that. to it after a while and then you assume it's there. But of course, if they charged us, a pound for every search you know, we'd all think differently <laughs> yeah they, they definitely haven't done it selflessly have they no no they're, no, they're not they're so. not like oh we must give people maps like there's definitely <laughs> a business case behind everything that they're doing but like i said it is that bartering isn't it i'm i'm kind of okay with people having access to pretty much any data <laughs> if i know precisely how the cheapest quickest way to get to a place you know and that's what google pro- provides to me is right one of google's brand values still don't be evil no they took that one off <laughs> <laughs> I, I rest my case. Indeed. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's move on. So uh, so next up, we have Alipay's Brexit backup plan. So this is a story over on Finextra. This is Alipay is awarded an e-money license over in Luxembourg. Luxembourg just seems to be giving these things out pretty easily at the moment, don't they? So uh, this is sort of yeah. hot on the heels of, is it Google and Facebook that have got yeah. one through there? I, mm. I think this is, so I, I mean. Facebook's Island, I think. Uh, Facebook is Island. Um, uh uh, Revolut and Estonia, Google. No, Revolut has Luxembourg for an e-money license and it's going after a banking license in right. Lithuania, Lithuania, actually. Lithuania. Um, I think, I mean, yes, you're right. I, and I don't know how, how well this sits with Luxembourg, but they do have a reputation as being one of the easiest places to get licensed. <laughs> in fact, you know, as you're saying, like Google doesn't necessarily have any, also, sorry, doesn't just have any money license there. It has all sorts of other licenses based out of, of Luxembourg. I mean, for Alipay, it makes perfect sense. Like, I mean, clearly they're coming. We've been saying for years they're coming. And I, and I think, you know, why wouldn't they go after the easiest place to do it? Um, I wonder how many more people we're going to see heading over to Luxembourg in the next, I suppose they haven't done it already. They're cutting it pretty short. Um, and I was going to say in the next eight weeks or so, but, uh, Wow, I th- I think- that's scary. It's eight weeks away. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, but I know I think so the, the important part about Alipay coming in, I mean, so Facebook did get an e-money license or a payments license in Dublin in 2016, but we haven't seen them do an awful lot with it yet. I mean, arguably, Facebook have had other problems to focus on, but they haven't done an awful lot with it. The same with Google. Like, they're kind of doing some things, but nothing particularly innovative and nothing that requires the use of a heavy licensing yet. So whether Alipay will leapfrog them, 
because obviously Alipay does quite a lot of work with um, uh, merchants in Europe where you, they already you can already pay with Alipay if you're a Chinese customer. So coming over and like buying expensive uh, stuff in Europe, you can already do that. Um, whether this is a move to like try and get the rest of us involved, but, um, which but, I but I do worry about this sort of trend of um, license arbitrage, regulatory yeah. arbitrage, because it, it's not like the US where you've got state and federal licensing. And arguably, this is a federal sort of license. They're looking for something that will cover all of Europe, yep. and yet are going to the easiest state, uh, you know, the easiest country in order to do it. Mm. Now, that's a problem. That's going to be a, pr- a big problem at some point, especially if they get into banking and suddenly it's about capital ad- adequacy and how this all sort of is regulated. Suddenly, it's like we find Lithuania is the license place for Europe-wide banks, and you know, the the uh, integrity of the financial system is based on whether the Lithuanian regulators are really doing their job or not. That that's an issue. What do you mean? Maybe like the taxation system is an island, right? Like this has happened, right? Yeah, you know, taxation's one thing. Like overseeing financial services is, is a is a different thing. A c- couple of years ago, when I was still at SoFi, we were thinking about you know other countries. Europe came up. Brexit had obviously happened, so therefore, I think otherwise d- London would have been the default. In discussions with many people, Luxembourg came up just as the kind of the easier way to do it mm-hmm. whether that's right or wrong that was certainly the the consensus mm. yeah it's, a, it's an interesting one it's like being friendly to these things but not being so friendly that you're making it too easy like it's a, it is an interesting sort of balancing out there isn't it because like so many uh, so many places so many different t- regulators are vying for being that that sort of source that magnet for the brightest and the boldest mm. doing interesting things isn't it but it's it's a real balancing act isn't it I got approached by the Lithuanian Department of Innovation to look at a fintech campaign here in the UK to make it known that they're very much open to fintech companies. And that's a market, particularly in the crypto space, that you've seen a lot of people go there for banking licenses to be able to do their crypto work and accept payments. And actually, I think um, the, the, the point you're making earlier, Jason, with regards to capital, is that that's what's happened in, in um, Ant Financial's own home market, right? So my understanding is that, you know, the, the Chinese government has put more onus on them to act like a, like a, like a, a normal, yeah. uh, in inverted commas, financial uh, services organization. Um, and I wonder whether they're starting to look at that and go, well, actually, maybe I need to look at an expansion and I need to start to deliver the service I already have into other areas while I deal with what's going on at home. And isn't open banking here in Europe going to be a big opportunity for them? Yeah. So if you're going to arrive in the market, maybe it's a little bit late, but still within the window that you can do something interesting. What, what about if you're sitting in a big bank right now? Like, is this like, oh shit, like the crumby of like these, <laughs> like, I mean, oh God, they're here. It's you the know? company that's, that's sort of forged the platform approach to financial services where it's a tech fin rather than a fintech. And they're looking at having that. I, I put them up in, in internal presentations at, at our agency to, to tell you where the future of financial services are because they've got this suite of almost looks like a magazine version of products. And what they've done is, is, is what every smart business at the moment is doing is, is make sure they own the customer and they own that data and they can offer all those different services. So I, 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 I'd be worried, but I mean, I don't know what the banks have got plans. I know they've all got platform plans themselves. Um, where they move as quickly is another question. It's that sort of hypothesis around is, is the Chinese uh, system, is the Chinese ecosystem uh, equivalent to the rest of the world enough that 
Alipay, Tencent, whatever, then just, you know, march across? Or is it just different enough that actually they're going to find it very difficult because that model just doesn't work? And it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think we saw when they were, you know, just dominant and making just trillions of dollars of payments, um, then uh, the whole uh, suddenly coming over to the UK, coming over to Europe and, and working with large retailers to say, well, Chinese tourists, you know, have a lot to spend. So why don't you st- start to take our payments? Because we're a scheme just like MasterCard, Visa and American Express. And you could see it's like, that's a slippery slope because suddenly it makes it very uh, attractive to the large retailers to go, great, the Chinese yen, yeah, we could do with a, a bit more of that over here. But suddenly everyone's taking that scheme and it, it suddenly becomes easier to then launch a product in that market, leveraging off of that. And I think that's sort of like, uh, you know, a dominant in one market that has such spending power for travelers and then using that to leverage your way in and being completely outside MasterCard Visa. Uh, Amex as a as a way of spending is super interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I completely agree. I, I don't think that we're necessarily going to see them come over and do the same platform play. I think one of the reasons they did so well with that in China is because so many people in China just didn't have access to those services elsewhere. Whereas most people in Europe have got a bank account and they do have access to credit and and they could invest if they wanted. I completely agree agree with Jason that actually I'd be more scared if I was Klarna. If they're coming in with payments, what can they do with those payment systems with the data they have? It's very easy for them to start moving into credit. Um, you know, they have their own kind of, uh, they have their own, uh, you know, payment acceptance methods in China, sort of things like QR codes. I would be more scared if I was, if I was on that side of things, on the payment side of things, than I was if I was a, a retail bank or offering loans or credit or anything like that. All I know is two bank meetings that I was with brought it up this week. Okay. Uh, Maybe I'm not, wrong. <laughs> not, 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 just, not just Alipay, not, not this story particularly, but just in a bit of fear about what it could mean. Uh, and I think it is, it's that constant sort of drumbeat in the background. It is that looming threat, isn't it? Well, um, yeah, I mean, if nobody well, uses a bank card anymore, they use Alipay instead, then that's a threat in and of itself, right? If agree. you go to well, that. It, it's a really backend. interesting question that come up, comes up all the time. It's like, why isn't big tech taking over banking yet? You know, they've got intelligent digital services. They've got crazy, uh, you know, engineering talent. They've got billions of customers. Actually, it's a, just a step over the line to for any of them to to make this up. Anyone got any views as to why we haven't seen that really yet? I, mean, I think it's, it's regulation. <laughs> Sorry. It started to happen, right? But just like some of the smaller steps, like we talked about Amazon, like doing lending and credit and payments. I feel like they've got to like, take slow steps and probably they already have quite strong partnerships with the banks that they'd be displacing so maybe they're just being cautious but. i think i think regulation is often but i also think exactly to that point as well if we've seen what the regulators done to google if amazon gets a payments license or makes one small step wrong with payments the regulators are going to be on it yeah and, and i just think the last couple of years of they've been dealing with other stuff i think that slowed it down i, I still think it's coming but i i don't know when is there a question mark over whether they want to be a bank would be the way that I'd look at it because frankly they don't want all the hassle that goes with being a bank and all they really want to do is cement their relationship with customers further and I imagine you know Amazon have already there was a story this week about how Amazon have set up a almost like a media buying arm to able to leverage the 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 purchases that are going across this platform to be able to sell that data on to advertisers and I think they want to do all the bits around the edges which disintermediate the banks and allow them to be the go-to for any services and avoid doing any of the hard stuff which might involve regulators etc because their business isn't financial services their business is delivering customers 
primarily consumption services, for want of a better word. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, you might argue in this digital world, any of the big players could take over any industry. If, if software is eating the world, they're experts in software and have crazy amounts of capital, they could take on anything. But then you look at like, what is the heart and soul, the direction of travel, the North Star for, for each of those businesses? And you look at Google, who's organizing the world's information. So you might say, well, what does that really mean? Well, Google Finance could be a, an amazing service in terms of aggregating accounts using AI, amazing ad platform. It's like mint on steroids for the mass market could be really interesting whereas apple is all about the the device the ecosystem the so what do we use our devices for the payment side of things you know buying online services so there's there's that edge amazon wants a a a, um, a part of every transaction so suddenly lending makes sense and payments make sense but does my mortgage make sense mm, probably not so so i think it's interesting when you're in an industry you see it from that kind of from an industry perspective rather than actually the industry is just a, a whole lot of services and products and actually these businesses will just come and take the ones that get them towards their goal rather than the goal of destroying you which which is the thing that everyone's afraid of yeah. I, I think i think that's uh, a fair shout i think the hard thing with banking is like the the business model is predicated on seeing your customers isn't it like arguably you know google haven't gotten into like airlines but they already shape how i buy flights you know i only <laughs> buy flights through those guys because they get me to the cheapest thing quickest really so you know they don't have to that's a very hi- highly regulated industry. They like you by accident. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, they could do it on purpose if they wanted to. Um, but, um, but yeah, they don't really have to get into financial services to really impact financial services. And actually, you know, to all of your points around regulation, really, like that's got to be the, the thing that's kind of keeping them out of it. I think the other thing is as well is like they're making a lot of money in other ways. Like financial services is hard, right? So, you know, make money in the ways that you can make money. Keep accidentally ticking forms you shouldn't have ticked. And then, uh, you know, you're all good with all the other stuff. And on that note, let's take a break. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. 
Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. So the finalists for the British Banking Awards 2019 have been released, and we're one of them. Woohoo! So uh, we've been nominated for Consultancy of the Year, which is pretty damn cool if I do say so myself. Last year's awards saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bud, Wise Alpha, and all sorts of other people get great accolades. So if you would like us to join them, which I'm sure... You love us, don't you, listeners? You would love that to happen. And then we would love for you to help with doing a vote for us. So just head over to, and it's a bit.ly link, so it's bit.ly forward slash 11FS29 and give us your vote. 2019. What did I say? 29. That would have been someone else. They'd have voted for who knows who. (sighs) Mother You would have voted for like... (laughs) slash 11fs2019 all right all right on with the show (laughs) so up with the next segment in the show this so this is your questions so we asked you guys to start submitting some questions for us and you have delivered with that so thank you very much this week's question comes from dexter cousins on twitter so this is a question from dexter saying australians engage with their banking apps 30 percent more than uk customers the Aussie incumbents have a strong digital offering compared to the UK. So does this mean that the big four Australian banks engage with their customers more than the mighty Monzo? Wow, it's a bit of a dig, isn't it? Yeah. It's Jason, you're here. Good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's interesting around the word engagement because a lot of banks sort of manage uh, measure against the, how many times do people open my app? Like, what do they do? So you might argue if like customers don't uh, aren't being told or given the right information about their account then they open it more. Like if actually you don't send me push notifications on things that are happening and I need to keep checking, then I'll open my app more. Is that engagement or is it just me having to open the app? So there's a sort of a question there as to how these things are measured because quite often people will say, I want a really engaging app. Do you? Is that what end customers want? Do they really want to have to open your app more? So there's, um, I, I find that interesting. I do agree. Like, look, um, Australian banks, they didn't have the financial crisis. They did have a lot of time to uh, to build infrastructure, but also they're the most profitable in the world in terms of like return on equity and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's or- because they have a closed system whereby until 2017, nobody else could play at all. And I mean, even Apple Pay couldn't play until like a few months ago. So I think that has helped them as well. Yeah. well and you've got a pretty soft spot for everything in Australia. Banking, Sarah. So, like, what do you think on this one? I hate the big four Australian banks because I think that they actually have done real harm to the financial services system in that country. Um, I have a soft spot for all Aussie fintechs and for the great leaps they've made. And we're going to come on to several Australian stories. And I promise I didn't write the show notes. Um, <laughs> I've just I've just come back from like two weeks in Australia. So I'm totally like in the mindset. Um, no, I I think to Jason's point, I completely agree. And I think it's more that um, they, they didn't have the competition. So why would people be looking, you know, why wouldn't they be doing their own things? You also have to think about the fact that in Australia, until recently, places didn't take Visa and MasterCard. They only took the Australian issued bank cards or they charged you. So, of course, you kept using their own card, you know, FPOS cards. And then when they introduced a wallet, well, why would you use Apple Pay or Google Pay? Because their wallet was the free one to use because it was what's called FPOS. Happy days for the big banks. Exactly. Until the Royal Commission. And then it all went horribly wrong. But you can go back and listen to previous podcasts for that. Well, and that's the thing, isn't it? There's lots of stuff happening in this geography, which is probably making a whole raft of customers actually question whether they've got their best interest. Why we have an office there? Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Do you know Sarah Hollingshead at RFI Group? We do. Pinged her a note. 
because they have a lot of data. They do. Oh, so, hold on. You're going to come into this this argument with facts. What? <laughs> like, no, have I you know. listened to this podcast? <clears throat> you, you're Back being, to my you're... competitor's <laughs> research house. I mean, Dan, what are you doing? Apparently, Australia, 76% versus the UK, 69% of uh, people uh, using at least one digital banking channel per week. So to your point, Jason, does that show engagement? It's another question mark. But apparently the Australians are, according to this, more digitally engaged. Um, and the big stat that I got from her was that how aware are they of at least one fintech provider? Over the last year and a half, it's gone from 24% to 75%. Oh, wow. So that's showing that there is much more of a knowledge around the... the uh, the is it Zinja? I've never actually had to say it out loud yeah, before Zinja. Yeah, and uh, the other uh, neo banks in in Australia. So the, it could be good, or someone could be paying a lot of advertising in a very few number of cities that that have a majority yeah. of population. Also, like very small population, very rich population. Until recently, very low levels of immigration. So you kind of you you I would I would play with the I would question the backgrounds of those stats. But I think generally speaking, you're right. They're ready. To use it, isn't, isn't Sorry, the regulator the problem? Sorry, I know. I was just going to say it'd be interesting to see. That I think agree with the point that there's sort of loyalty by inertia there. Um, but it'll be interesting to see next year when open banking comes into effect in Australia how that changes those engagement metrics. Well, well it's always been sort of there's like almost a rule of thumb that like the Australian market is a couple of years behind the UK. So that whole like, you know, challenger banks here, wait a few years, challenger banks in the, in Australia, you know, open banking here, wait a couple of years, open banking there. So it's interesting that there's this sort of move from, uh, from the big banks having a bit of a monopoly, uh, someone looking at it, hold on, this seems like a familiar story, new banking licenses, new players, new fintechs. You know, I, I think we're seeing that same story play I think Australia is going to be fascinating, though, because actually it's, uh, it is it is uh, sort of emulating a lot of the stuff that we've seen here. But equally, it's so close to China. You know, we've seen uh, even recently, I think, Sarah, WeBank kind of go through all of the yeah. trademarks and get to a position where they can actually go into that market. So, you know, I, I think is Australia the first place where we'll start seeing really sort of westernized challenger banks being set up? And, and obviously, Anthony Thompson's gone out there as well, hasn't he? To, do you want, do we, should we move on to the next story? Because we yeah. have two more stories to cover with details about this, and then it's, we can start building on the facts. It sounds very sensible. But yeah, Dexter, thank you very much for your, uh, your question there. Uh, if you want to submit uh, another question into the podcast, then drop us an, uh, an email at podcast podcast at 11fs.com or find us over on Twitter and you might be the next one that we read. As Sarah says, there's plenty more stuff going on down under. So let's hear what's going on next. So we have Zinja's Ninja. Come on, guys, really? Zinja's Ninja? Okay. Zinja's Ninja's move into crowdfunding. This is a story over on Finextra. So Aussie digital bank Zinja makes crowdfunding move. What do you think, Sarah? Is this uh, is this them emulating more what's happening here? I mean, I, I I could jump on this, but I think it's fairer to let Jason talk about that, given given his involvement with Zinger. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a I'm a board advisor. I'm an investor. I'm uh, in fact, there's a board meeting tonight, bizarrely. Uh, and Eric, who's the CEO, like little trivia, we worked together 18 years ago in Accenture in London. Uh, he moved out there. I got involved in uh, Starling Monzo and whatever. We had a chat, suddenly setting a bank up. So, um, uh, that was a good year, essentially. <laughs> <clearly>. <laughs> yeah. So, um, they're doing like, 
you know, amazingly well. They've just got their restricted banking license. They uh, raised a million dollars in three days, $500,000 in 18 hours in crowdfunding. 23,000 people have signed up for their Zinja app and they do call their community the Zinja Ninjas. Okay. Hence the, the kind of thing there. And, uh, and it's being used in 17 countries. So they're going that route. You know, they're looking at different lending products and different uh, cards, but they are taking advantage of this uh, this you know royal commission and the the approach there. Can, can I ask a question? Um, Zinja is like the closest almost carbon copy we've seen of Monzo um, in the sense that the the way that they've been talking about using it abroad um, and the building of a community before it launches. And Jason, you and I have talked about this and how the the the, the UK neo banking market has moved on. And perhaps if you were going to launch back now, you probably wouldn't necessarily do it that way. You might do something differently. But um, this feels like it just backs up your point perfectly. You were saying about Australia being like a couple of years behind the UK because um, I can see the similarities in both the strategy and the products. And you know, um, for all that we say, Australia is practically in what well, is in Asia really geographically the culture there is, is is actually very very similar to the uk so is that is that i don't know is that do you think that's a deliberate move on their part to look at monza and say oh that's worked we can try that here because we haven't got one yet look i think it's the same thing we talk to all clients about it it doesn't you don't have to sit in a you know a small we work somewhere looking to the into the distance and come up with some you know completely new brand new thing you look across the world and you see what's working and we know that that jobs to be done for for normal people are, are, are well conserved across the world, but have some differences. Mm-hmm. So that they're they're offering in some ways shares some similarities with Monzo, but they're doing some other lending products, some other things that are def- definitely different. I mean, I was just thinking about the the, the the sort of the if you talk about the customer acquisition strategy, so building the community, the crowdfunding, oh, sure. and then the idea of having um, free card uh, transactions abroad. We know the Aussies love to travel. Yeah. We know that like you get more Aussies in London. I mean, <laughs> Australia Day is next weekend, and there are more Aussies in London on Australia Day. Clapham Common, by the way, terrifying on Australia Day. Um, <laughs> but we know they love to travel, so it is, it is a, a, a good you know it's yeah. a good hook, and it's worked well with the Brits, and it's going to work well with the Australians as well. Yeah, but, I think um, so. Do they have a celebrity endorsement yet, or Jason? Jason Bates. Jason Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, goes in. Sorry, stand corrected. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, sticking with Australia again. So we have Vault wants to jolt the man. We're we're running this, aren't we? All right. Vault wants to jolt the Australian banking scene with its new license. So this is a story over on Finextra. Aussie digital bank Vault wins a banking license. So Vault Bank is an online and smartphone only banking offering uh, a range of retail banking products for smart savings and account aggregation tools. The firm also intends to compete with Australia's biggest banks in the SME space as well, uh, which is super, super interesting. So it, I think it just reinforces like lots and lots of stuff are happening in Australia. Can I can I just geek out on the I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to geek out on the regulatory environment for like two minutes and I'm also going to like plug my Forbes blog post on the Australian regulatory environment just at the same time. Um, but the really interesting thing to me... I don't think I can me, stop you. Can I like just I've got, <laughs> go with it. Done. Run. Running. Um, so the point you made earlier about the fact that they look at open banking and they look at what's happening elsewhere and they copy it. That is absolutely true but they do it at such a pace. So the in, it was 2017 um, the government Bank Review said that the Australian regulators should have a look at the UK and see what they're doing. And they came out towards the end of 17, 2017 saying, right, you've, this has worked really well in the UK. We need more competition here. We really need more competition here. Um, you should have a look at what the FCA has done and we should copy that. Um, in May 2018, APRA, which is the regulator, formalized that licensing framework and three days later gave Vault their provisional license, which, like, yeah, 
and then you think that that was in May, and and they've gone from like that provisional license to having a full license, which by the way is on similar terms to the UK. So you get two years. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's two years whilst you build up operations and capital and testing. I think it's one year in the UK. Okay, when you're in the UK, but they didn't need two years. They didn't need one year. They kind of went through it at a rate of knots. And if you look at open banking as well, the Australian government sort of looked at open banking around the world. They looked at India. They looked at Europe, and then went, "Open banking is great." We can do open data. So they've got <laughs> bigger than financial services. So you can pull down a lot more information. And I just I just think it's an, an interesting model of kind of a fast follower model, but in a regulatory environment, which sounds a bit bonkers. But I think it's probably going to work for them. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it plays to that very competitive edge that Australians have, right? Like it's like, it's true. you know, bloody poms did it one way. We're going to do it better. <laughs> so I like that. But do you see like this playing out in the US? I mean, uh, what? Uh, five and a half thousand credit unions, six thousand small banks. It's like the big four or five. It's just such a super different environment from a lot of territories where there's a massive amount of concentration. Like, what's the feel over there at the moment in terms of like where this stuff's going? Yeah, it is different. When I got there, I was amazed how many banks there are over there, and I do feel that generally the challenger banks, if I use that expression, are a l- further forward in, in in the UK, where where I also know than in the US. Um, I think there's probably some level of complacency over there. Uh, this is a bigger country. It's harder to crack, et cetera. But the good ones will come through. And, and it's starting to happen now, but it's a lot slower, a lot slower than Australia, obviously, in terms of the uh, the approvals. Uh, and open banking as well. Like, obviously, that's, that's in different places, but that seems like it'd be phenomenally difficult with so many players out uh, out there. Yeah, I, I mean, just the, the state-by-state... Um, regulatory landscape makes almost anything very very difficult um so even if you have a national license it's it's just it's it's a big country so so it's a lot it's a bit slower it's interesting because we we say that a lot on this podcast and we get a lot of people really pissed off in the u.s going like you don't understand u.s regulation but it's it's nice to hear that actually that does reflect the you know actually putting a big organization in in place over there because it it just it's not one country it's you know each state is essentially the size of a country in europe yeah particularly for the new the new breed getting a national charter is really difficult so you go state by state or you partner with an existing bank and that just creates obstacles that you would prefer not to have uh so, so it makes it that bit harder well i guess we saw like simple and move and obviously like kick this all off almost like way back in the day they're the og they're the uh, <laughs> you know the original sort of challenges and they all worked with big banking partner which in some ways uh, limited what they could do um so it's going to be interesting to see how that works because i think uh, we saw monzo uh, uh announced that they were looking at the us were doing something imminently and also mentioned a partner, which is something that they've, you know, not mentioned elsewhere. So that maybe hints still to, you know, the need for that kind of connection. I think, I think sorry, I, was gonna say, I think the contrast between the states and Australia is fascinating as well. So Varo, so, um, so, uh, Varo Money are the first, uh, fintech who, to have been sort of awarded, like, they've been allowed to enter the application process. Let's put it that way. Um, and there were a couple of others who of, of fintechs who I think Stripe was one who went in for a different kind of license and pulled out and have come back in again. And this has been going on for years. I mean, the Australian uh, the Australians managed to do like three new licenses within like four months. The Americans haven't managed to do bank in ten years. <laughs> um, so I just I just I know Australia is much smaller, but I just find that a fascinating. Like, if the regulators do want to move 
they, they can. I do appreciate that there are different conflicts between the regulators in the States as well. I mean, I think it works both ways as well. You think about, you just mentioned open banking, like, although it doesn't necessarily exist in the US, you know, they've had the same propositions for much longer. Like Citibank started, you know, in the 90s building these like aggregation tools, Mint.com. I mentioned and Plaid's doing super well. Plaid are doing very yeah. well and, and just moving into Europe now with the yeah. Quovo acquisition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hmm. It is interesting. All right. From Vault over in Australia to Vault OS over in the UK. So this is Lloyd's. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. I got that wrong the first time, guys. All right. Uh, this is Lloyd's cost cutting exercise with or without thought machine which is interesting. So this is a story over on banking tech. Lloyd's to cut costs with Thought Machine platform moves. So this is uh, off the back of a FT article. Uh, job losses could be on the way as Lloyd's is planning to save hundreds of millions of pounds in annual technology costs by switching its computer systems to a new platform. Uh, according to the FT, the bank has started discussions with regulators about transferring data on about 500,000 customers off its old intelligent finance brand to test a new core banking system built by Thought Machine. Um, so this is off the back of Lloyds Banking Group taking a 10% stake. They, so they invested £11 million in Thought Machine, which is a super interesting one. So like... Honestly, like I know banks get a lot of shit for a lot of stuff that they have done that they shouldn't have done. But this kind of feels like the stuff that Lloyds Banking Group should be doing and should be commended for. So they're investing in new technology that's going to make them more efficient and allow them to do better things for their customers. So they don't need all of those people to manage all of those systems in the same way that they would do before. Like this is the same sort of um, argument that's put at people for shouting at them for closing down branches that they don't need anymore. So, you know, I honestly think, uh, you know, both in terms of the the thought machine side of this, which is, you know, really, really smart people mm. doing really, really smart things. You know, there's what, 27, 28 ex-Google engineers building oh, no, out. Well, that's who started it. Now there's like 100 mm. and... 150 or something. I mean, Paul, we know Paul Taylor over there, we've known him for a few years. And for me, this is really interesting. You know, we've got the old guard of Temenos, Fiserv, FIS. Those guys have been around for a very long time. They make a very traditional, you know, banking product engine. You bring in T24, you set it up. It's going to cost you, what, a few million. Uh, and, and away you go. Like, that's the standard way of doing it. Whereas Thought Machine was started by ex-Google engineers who were in voice synthesis. They were like, like hardcore engineers. Um, went through thousands of engineers to to hire just the best people they could and have made basically a uh, you know next generation banking platform off the back of that so you're seeing now though you know a new set of of providers coming through you know you've got uh, Anthony Jenkins 10x you've got thought machine we're doing uh, foundry like uh, and suddenly it's it's a intelligent sort of services uh, cloud, properly cloud-based microservices platform rather than old-school monolithic banking engine. And, it, and is this really Lloyd's making a sensible step? You know, they're not going, well, this seems sensible. Let's change the whole bank and go like, all right, flick yeah. the switch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, 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 that, no. We, we, that ends badly. We yeah, that didn't yeah. go well. <laughs> they're doing like a phase say. migration, aren't hmm. they? So they're doing, was it the intelligent, I can't remember the, Intellig the yeah. Intelligent 500,000 customers, they're talking to the regulator yeah. about how they do it. And but it's a sunsetted business, I read. So to use the American sports analogy, they're kind of defensive rather than offensive. So the, mm. They're not trying to get new customers. So I think the risk of them messing up is, is less than if they were sure. to move the a core growing business. The difficulty is that if 
all goes to plan from a customer perspective at least initially no one knows anything and like you say <laughs> if it doesn't go to plan then everybody knows you're everything in real trouble so to actually continue bringing out new things that customers are going to notice whilst going through a migration whilst also closing branches is is the hard part right i mean i think as i said so i was gonna say my, my initial thought was like well that's a huge wasted opportunity you're just gonna like use it to to like save money like come on you could do more exciting things with it and then my brain went how big is lloyd's okay yeah they probably do need to do this in baby steps and their baby steps are actually more interesting than what perhaps we've seen some other people try and do baby steps the other with. interesting thing is is whether it actually opens up more innovation because you mentioned some of yep. these big old school platforms really hard as a fintech to plug into those but mm. if you have something fresh under the hood they can start oh, collaborating yeah. with more companies uh, much faster i think it's a super smart move because you could see how the business case really works for the the banking investment committee look this is going to save us hundreds of millions over years great like away we go while at the same time you've got now got a platform you can actually build on and build through these next generation things so you've not you've not tried to pitch too hard you've got this whole great cost saving uh, base on there uh, with a new platform yeah I, I honestly think this is the and i used to work for Lloyds banking group right so like you know i i you can take that as you like whichever way you think this is going to be positive or negative type thing but i i really think this is the first project in the uk that's actually looking at fundamentally transforming the the infrastructure in the back office of a big bank this is not something that's like shiny innovative bullshit this is not adding more cost into running the bank this is fundamentally changing the the costing uh, the um ratio between their operating costs and the the cost that they, they have to keep doing these innovations so like I really applaud this. I think it's great. So I, I have a question. So um, obviously there's a trade union involved here because when we talk about job losses, there's always a quote from a trade union. Um, and I appreciate that we all know that there probably are going to be job losses as we move towards these new, te- new technology platforms. I just wondered if anybody knew what money Lloyds was spending on upskilling or reskilling because I think that's an interesting one. I think that's got that's actually an interesting part of the, the conversation. So mm. we're very excited about these new technology platforms and the opportunities they offer. But in order to both maintain those platforms and to develop new services and to offer the services that customers expect they're going to need new types of people working in the business so you can look at this with kind of like mm. a very mopey like we're going to lose thirty thousand jobs it's going to be terrible but actually lloyd's is going to need new types of people new skills and and, and i wonder whether it's spending any money i don't know whether it's spending I don't, any money I don't on know. just the article says it's pledged to retrain as many staff as possible to avoid compulsory redundancies now whether that's just corporate speak or whether they follow through i don't know but Hopefully that's some truth. It, it feels like it should be a dual pronged attack from my perspective. Like, look at your technology and how you can how you can invest in that, and then also invest in your people. So, yeah. well, back in November, Lloyd's did actually make a point that they are introducing eight thousand new roles and actually moving six thousand staff from existing roles and retraining them into digitally facing roles. So, I think this is going to be a continual trend, right? Actually, if you can reskill people and move them to those those areas where they're actually adding value in those new the new world awesome but I, I don't i honestly don't think that we should artificially create roles where there isn't roles i know mm. that's not what you're saying at all so i'm not putting words <laughs> in your mouth but uh, but i think it's one of those things where it's like actually if we want if you want big banks to compete with uh, the challenger banks this is a small team sport right you know we, we they should face into that i know trade unions are not going to like that but this is part of that evolution they need to be competitive so was it about a year ago they announced the sort of three billion war chest, didn't they? So I mean that's the kind of the question for the floor is what's involved in that and is it reskilling and getting people into the right type of positions where they can help to further some of those new digital enterprises? 
And the other thing I thought was quite interesting was that, you know, that whole sort of phase migration thing. Um, operational resilience is becoming a bigger thing. So the Treasury Select Committee announced that they were going to be launching an investigation this year. Mm -hmm. They've already announced that uh, bankers will have to uh, forfeit certain bonuses if they don't reach certain targets in terms of resilience. So I think it would be a silly bank which goes an immediate port from one place to the other, especially a bank as large as Lloyd's. And I think a lot of the guys have got to sort of work out that, you know, the, the issues we had with TSB and then to a lesser extent with Visa and such like last year, the, you know, the government isn't going to accept that's going to happen and they're going to clamp down massively. Yeah. So, you know, to me, it, it's, it's, it seems like the right kind of move. You know, the, I think the unsung heroes this story procurement yes absolutely <laughs> like this is so thought machine no like where are said. they live like i don't th actually think they have a live implementation i had a chat with the guys at eba day in the summer and i saw them at finnovate last yeah. year and you know they built some great stuff but yeah. i'm with you this is this is a this is a very early win and what a win impressive yeah. work and the fact that then lloyd's you know uh put 11 million in for a 10 percent stake but actually, they got that through that, you know, normally it's like, where, how many million customers are working on this? Because we want to be sure that this is the right thing. But to actually take that step forward and say, look, this is a great platform and it, you know, and it works. And therefore, like, we're, we're going to, uh, to move forward. Like, that's that, mm. that for me, almost more than anything is the biggest change here. It's actually not taking something that's tried and true and established and no one gets fired for, you know, hire, for hiring IBM. Like, it, it's that thing there. Like someone, someone like took Who a stand made call? and made a yeah. call. Yeah. So that's great. So Dan, you'll recognize this from back home, but this week's play of the week goes out to <laughs> Lloyd's Banking Group's procurement team. <laughs> the, the award is in the post. All right. Well, let's move on to the and finally story of the week. So this is over on BBC News. This is Church of England is implementing contactless payment collections for the they're all of their legions of people who are turning up every Sunday. So this is amazing. So churches have reportedly an increase of 97% in donations made at services trials for a digital collection box. So a partnership between technology firm SumUp and the Church of England meant that their uh, parishioners were able to make contactless payments using portable devices. Churchgoers picked up a sum from four options decided by the church before using a smartphone or card to make their payment. Okay. I mean, they're not the first charity to do this. Um, there are an awful lot of charities out there do do it. So, I mean, so we work with Comms for Good. They, they wander around, you know, with it and say, you know, do you want to do £1, £5, £10, £20? I mean... Guide Dogs the Blind, my, that's my favourite one. They have guide dogs out on the street and you can pat the dog. If you pat the dog, you've got to tap your card against its collar to donate some money. And oh, I'm wow. like, Jesus, oh, nice. done, easy. Yeah. Yeah. Pat dog, pay money, yes. <laughs> we, we have puppy therapy in WeWork this week and I've never seen our team so happy or so chilled. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> I can't, so, I can't, is it like uh, those bikes around London? Will there be just puppies around that you can take away for a couple of hours and you just oh, that's keep? Genius. Like, I would do that. Business <laughs> yeah. yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Rent a dog. I was going to say my uh, my relationship with the Church of England is already pretty contactless, but um, <laughs> oh, nice. there, there is actually a firm Pushpay that's like been around since like 2011, doing this specifically for churches and and nonprofits and things like that. So I, but, but I don't think it's that. 
It's going to work less well in the states where they'd have to sign, though, isn't it, really, given that you're, (laughs) like, so behind? Oh, yeah. I've been getting confused going into cafes here trying to pay and, like, where do I sign? And people are like, you don't need to sign. (laughs) It's like magic. You paid as you walked in. (laughs) We just took it off your (laughs) So what do you think, though? Do you think this will actually make people start doing more donations or, like, at least not have a really good excuse not to? Well, I'm fascinated by whether the 90% increase is because you can't pull, like, 20Ps and 1Ps and 5Ps, make a big clatter and go, I've made my donation. Yeah. Or whether suddenly you have to do- donate five pounds or be, you know, am I going to the bottom it, one? So what's the, I'd be pressure, interested in yeah. the, the volume versus, of, versus the value of those transactions and it, how that this works. This is a small sample size though, but just allowing people to pay if they don't have cash, I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, genu- I genuinely think there should be because uh, more done with this, um, you know, with getting contactless payment uh, readers out to different charities. And I know that in Sweden, they've been working with IZETL for quite a long time to have that equivalent of the um, the big issue sellers there being able to take the payments. Um, and I've actually seen some buskers. So I live over in Bermondsey, uh, you know, on the south side of Tower Bridge, and there's an awful lot of buskers. And there are two or three who regularly have, um, they actually have Barclays terminals, but taped to a board and is like tap to tap to donate. Mm-hmm. So not to donate, sorry, but to contribute to their, you know, whatever it's called. But um, they have the exact same thing. So you go up to them and you press at like, £1, £5, £10, and you just tap your card and walk away. So if the buskers what, are on it... I think it's really interesting is, like, the data analyst opportunity here. Like, can you can you rank the sermon based on, like, how many donations? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, you could get really data-driven with... Those, those, those <laughs> priests are getting new KPIs, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Clearly. Yeah. So it turns into more of a tipping service, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like 10% for a good service. Who like, okay, <laughs> said it? But, I mean, there's, there's an awful opportunity to mine that data, isn't Did, there? Does anybody else find the like the presets on that like really presumptuous, though? Yep. It's like, yeah. actually, and that's the bit that riles me. It's like, I want to put in my own amount type thing, and it could be a penny. Mm. It still makes that bleep, bleep. And it's fine. Like I, I feel, I feel good about it. But if it's like ten pound, twenty, thirty pound, actually, you're like, well, ten pound sounds like a lot. Like mm. you know, what's God doing like with all that money? The cheap wine thing. They like they level you with like one really expensive one, and then like yeah. you're always going to go in the middle option. So they're like, what always for commercial buy, engineering? Always buy the yeah. house wine. Always buy the house wine. It's usually better than the second most expensive in a restaurant. I'm right. amazed we yeah. haven't mentioned the co-founder yet. Oh yes, well that was. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to? Do the honors, please, Dan. Oh, oh. I feel so privileged. Uh, so the co-founder of the tech company behind the enterprise is Mark Alexander Christ. Perfect. This was meant to be, wasn't it? It really was meant to be. Is that the mic drop? But I think it it's was. an awkward situation, isn't it, in terms of like third sector and payments. And so I believe, what was it, Sadiq Khan had this whole, um, you can donate through contactless on the wall outside TFL stations. But there was that awkward story last year around uh, giving homeless people QR codes. And just like, it kind of made sense, but it kind of, there was an innate gut feel, which just felt wrong. Um, and I think it's interesting how, how, you know, obviously as we become more and more of a cashless society, um, it'll never go away, but more and more cash society, how we, you know, get over that, you know, I haven't got any, I haven't got any cash in my yeah. pocket kind of question. Yeah, the yeah. answer is, well, you've always got a card, right? So, um, no, I, I think, exactly I think, I think the- it's interesting. And the idea, the idea of like scanning a homeless person just great, <laughs> right? Uh, sorry, it sounds horrible, but that, that was the idea that was being proposed at the time. So, um, you know, hopefully there are ways for fintechs to help some of these sort of third sector but, companies but it's to that sort of where, solve that. where mm. tech and all of a sudden contactless payments meet reality and all of those tiny areas that you didn't realize you actually used to pay for. I was in, um, I, I was embarrassed in a restaurant the other day with paying the bill and them not including the tip on the card. And all of a sudden you're like, 
oh, but what change do I have? And suddenly you get into this weird thing of, actually, I would prefer I'll pay the bill and then let me do a contactless tip. But no one's really kind of, or the restaurants I've been in, no one's really had that yet. So whether it's church services, leaving money on the the plate, homeless people, tips, you know, there's a, there's that, that bizarre sort of other use cases of money that we're going to have to start finding solutions for. Um, otherwise those people start Mm. to, uh, to lose out. So on that note, Steve at the Wagamamas, where Jason tipped <laughs> Sorry, a Steve. piece of lint and 47 pence. We do apologize. All right. On that note, this wraps up this week's FinTech Insider News. So thank you very much to everybody for listening. And thank you very much to our guests. So uh, Dan M, where can people find you? Twitter at MacklinDen. Fantastic. And Dan L. Uh, Twitter at PRMonkeyMan. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think we're going to have to like talk about that. Are we? We're going to have to talk about. Should we let it go? We'll just let it go. We'll come back from the next one. All right, Freddie, uh, Twitter at Fred Kelly. Very good, Jason uh, at Jason Bates, Sarah at Sarah Kachansky or on Forbes because I want everybody to go and read that Australia article and I want you to get behind me for opening an 11FS office in Sydney. She's serious, guys. Uh, you can find me at David Breer on Twitter. What do you think of today's show? I think I know the answer, but let us know over on do you, at... Do you know the answer? I'm pretty sure. Like, honestly, if they don't bleep some of the stuff that I've said, I definitely know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> so, like, Alex... We're going to be explicit in India again, aren't we? Yeah, it's we gonna are. Be awful. This going out in India, guys. Uh, but come find us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. And don't forget, if you did love the show, you're those three people, then find us on iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks very much, guys. Goodbye. <laughs>